Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Let's begin with prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. O Master, who loves mankind, illuminate our hearts with the pure light of your divine knowledge and open the eyes of our mind to understand the teachings of your holy scriptures. Instill in us also the fear of your blessed commandments, that we may overcome all carnal desires, entering upon a spiritual life, and understanding and acting in all things according to your holy will. For you are the enlightenment of our souls and bodies, O Christ God, and to you we give glory together with your eternal Father and your all holy, gracious, and life giving spirit, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome back, Dr. Smith. It's great to be with you. Thanks so much. Welcome back, everybody. I know there might be a few folks that were not here last week, and I'm glad that you're here tonight. So tonight, uh, what I want to substantially do is deal with the documentary hypothesis itself. My goal, my main goal over this next about 55 or so minutes here is to help you understand what it was how it came about, and also what are the, the real problems with it. And then next week, we'll do some cleanup uh, and finish off the series. But tonight's going to really be a hard look at the DH or documentary hypothesis. Okay, so just a few names and dates. I don't want to get too hung up in the dates, but let me uh, start with one of the figures. When we talk about the documentary hypothesis, we've got to go back, actually, from the 19th century back to the 1600s. And I always get a kick out of this one because one of my favorite priests, and I think, he, I think he's been at the Institute, or some of you may know his name, Father Richard Simon. He's a priest in Chicago. He's a good friend of mine. If Father Simon, you're watching, hello, or people out in Chicago, uh, he's a great priest. But he actually happens to share the name with the guy that kick-started all of this kind of skepticism that led up to the documentary hypothesis. I'm talking about a French priest in uh, the 17th century, whose name is Father Richard Simon. So what did he do? Well, Father Richard Simon, this French priest, argued that the Pentateuch could not have been composed by Moses. Now, we saw all the way up until about around the year 1000, right, in that period from, you know, right after the closing of the New Testament until about the year 1000, there was no disputing what the scriptures had said. And last week, we even had a scripture that talks about how Moses wrote all the words of God. Remember that in, in a book, write it down. And then a few questions begin to emerge in around the turn of the millennium, but things hold pretty much as they were until we get to Father Simon. He's the major key player. So what he does in a French monograph in 1678, he provided what he thought was the evidence that suggested that there were multiple versions of the Pentateuch. In other words, he said, this wasn't one unified source. Now, this was a very influential document, but what I want to point out are some of the things, we can look at a few here, that were how he made his case. The first is what he called textual incon 
inconsistencies. Now, what, is, what did he mean by textual inconsistencies? Well, let's look at an example. So let's open up our Bibles to the book of Genesis. And we're going to study just for a moment the story of the call of Abraham, which you may know is told in Genesis 12. That's the beginning of the so-called Abrahamic covenant. And the story of Abraham really continues all the way through about chapter 25 of Genesis. Okay, but now we are at the beginning of that call narrative. So turn with me to Genesis 12, and this is what Simon was pointing out. Okay, in Genesis chapter 12, God tells Abram, his name is at this point still Abram, it's not changed till Genesis 17 to Abraham, to leave Haran uh, after the death of his father, Terah, T-E-R-A-H. Okay, now back up a bit in 1126, because in 1126, we're told that the father of Abraham, whose name is Terah, how old he was. It says, when Terah had lived 70 years, he became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now, in 1132, he dies, okay? He dies at the ripe old age of 205. So, a little bit of math here, and I'm going to summarize. Abraham would have been 135 years old, right? 70 plus 75, uh, when God called him to leave Ur. That's the original city. But look at 12.4. In 12.4, it says, Abraham went as the Lord told him. Lot was with him, his nephew. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So, what it appears is that we have an inconsistency between chapter 11 and chapter 12. Basically, the question is, how old is Abraham? Is he 135 or is he 75 or how old is he? So this is one example of a number of apparent inconsistencies, and I'll, I'll point out some other ones as we move along here, that Father Simon believed could only be rectified or be made sense of if we have behind what we call the Pentateuch today, a number of sources that were sort of stitched together. Okay, now let's not get into the apologetics questions. Say like, well, Dr. Smith, what's the answer to that question? Those are important questions and I don't want to side skirt them, but they're not really the main topic tonight. There is an answer to that question. The, the short answer is scholars have looked at those texts in Genesis 11 that I mentioned and asked the question, how broadly are we to understand Terah giving birth. Is that to just Abraham, the firstborn? Is it to talking about all three? So some of it has to do with the, it could be resolved most likely with a close analysis of the Hebrew text. Just because something jumps off the page and strikes us as an inconsistency, it doesn't necessarily mean that it is. So I'm not really at all troubled by what Father Simon raised with that one. I would say it's kind of a red herring. But that's not the only evidence he had by a long shot. There are other apparent inconsistencies that he points out. There's also, it's true, what he called multiple, multiple versions of narratives. For example, he looked especially at what are known as the two creation accounts. Okay, so the two creation accounts is referring here to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. But actually, Genesis 1 ends not at the end of chapter 1, but at chapter 2, verse 3. You're like, what? When they did the chapters and verses of the Bible, 
That wasn't until the Middle Ages, long after the age of the Bible, right? Of all the biblical texts did not have chapters and verses. You guys know this, but I'm just reminding you of what you know. And when it was drawn up, it's probably be safe to say that it would have been better if they ended chapter 1 at Genesis 2, verse 3. Okay, Genesis 2, verse 4 begins this way and open up to 2, 4. And you can see we have sort of a break in the action here where it says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And then we move on into the second creation account. Um, the first creation account doesn't end at 131, but it continues with the completion of the work of the Lord on the sixth day and the, and the Sabbath. In fact, that's what the whole first creation account is pointing towards. It's all about worship. It's really about how not, not so much about how God created man and woman, although that's part of it, but it's about how he created them, asterisk, for worship. So Genesis 1 technically ends, the narrative ends, not in 131, but in chapter 2, verse 3, with the telling of the seventh day. Think about it, right? If we don't get the seventh day, then the story is incomplete. So it's just kind of a misnomer that chapter 1 should really break at 2, verse 3. But it is what it is. Okay. So what Simon said, funny, right? is that chapter 1 through 2, verse 3, is the first creation account. And then we have what he believed was a different account written by a different author. Now, I don't want to get too deeply into a debate about Genesis 1 and 2 now. What I would say, and to remind you of, is that the way that we should approach this as Catholics is to understand that what we've got going on is not two divergent accounts but really sort of like a macro and then a micro picture, okay? That's not how Simon understood it, but it's how we as Catholics, I, I think, should begin to approach the inspired text of Scripture. In other words, you get the six days of creation laid out in Genesis 1, and then in Genesis 2, the reason the order is different there, it doesn't begin with the first day, the second day, starts right with Adam, right? So it's like he looked at that and said, oh, this is a great inconsistency. But another way of looking at it would be that the inspired author of Scripture is kind of flipping the story from the big picture to the close-up. Not unlike in a movie where you might get a close-up, movie might start with a close-up, then you get a flashback, right, where the story's told uh, in reverse. And remember this movie Crash that came out, and they stringed all these narratives together. Okay, so if you think about movies, text can do that as well. They can change perspectives, and I think that's what's essentially going on there. But again, Simon, in the... Uh, 17th century with the materials that he had was doing his best to make sense of it. Okay. He also pointed out to the flood narrative. Look at Genesis 7 verse 4. It says, for in seven days I will send rain upon the earth for 40 days, right? That good biblical number of 40, right? But then if you look at chapter 8 verse 1, it says, but God remembered Noah. And then look at this. It says, in verse 3, reading along with me, uh, and the waters receded from the earth continually at the end of 150 days. Here again, Simon is, you know, his brain's exploding. He's like, Moses couldn't have written this. So this was the kind of investigative work that Simon had done. Um, he also found a number of repetitions, but Casuto handled those repetitions in particular in a very a beautiful way. Is he said, what appears to the naked eye is simply repetitions, like one source has this story and another source, and it just got stitched together, and then you have these repetitions, explained and demonstrated with facts 
how the repetitions in scripture are very intentional. But again, that's not how Simon understood it. He simply saw these as incongruities. Think about in the Psalms. If you read a Psalm carefully, you may find that even from one verse or part of a verse to the next part of the verse, you have what appears to be simply a repetition of what was said. But if you study a text more closely, what you may find is that in uh, verse 1a, you get a line, and then in verse 1b, same sentence, it's just slightly different. And in recent years, people like Robert Alter, I'll put his name up here, he's a Jewish scholar, have done studies on the Psalms and those repetitions and have explained and shown us again with facts that those repetitions are not merely repetitions. They're often what he calls intensifications. So I teach a course on the Psalms and I go through these in the Hebrew and also in the English and show my seminarians out. Sometimes just changing one word slightly brings a magnification to a particular dimension of what was contained in the first part of the verse. Okay, that's just one example of why you get repetitions in stories. Another example of a repetition you get is distress action. In the story of um, Rebecca, remember when she brings the water to the camels? It's always back and forth action, but if we were to look at that text in Genesis, where the story occurs, what you see is that it's a very beautiful way of showing the heroic action of her, you know, watering, bringing water to the men, bringing water to the camels, and that repetitions are in there for a particular reason. As I like to joke with my seminarians, we don't have word processing in this ancient oral culture, right? We don't have bold and italics and things like this that we take for granted. So in the oral culture, when the stories were passed down, these repetitions serve very important theological as well as literary. They're, they're unifying is what they are. But we, we hear them. We're not used to them in modern years because modern literature and modern speech is a little bit different. Okay. So I'm kind of presenting his case, and I'm also rebuffing it as we go, okay, a little bit here. So you have to kind of keep both things in mind. Okay. So that was Richard uh, Simon. So that was what he did. Now, around the same time, we have an English philosopher, Thomas Hobbes, you may know that name, and an unorthodox Jewish scholar whose name is Benedict Spinoza. And they did the same thing as Simon had done, essentially, in their work. So they built off of his work. The difference between the two, and this is what I want you to see here, is that what Simon was arguing was that it could not be one author, but he still asserted that the date of the Pentateuch was very, very old, right? So basically what, what Simon would argue is that, well, you had various sources around the time of Moses that were putting together this Pentateuch, and so they took these various traditions, kind of stitched them together, and that's why you get all these incongruities. Okay, that's essentially what he was arguing. What Hobbes and Spinoza did was to take it to the next level, and they suggested, based on a number of arguments, that the text was much later. And so this is where we get into the dating thing. So they propose that this text could not have been written in the 1400s, the time of Moses, for various reasons, but proposed the fifth century is when it all came together. And who they look to is a figure in scripture, you've heard of, I'm sure, is the priest Ezra. Now, Ezra's a very important character, even outside of this documentary hypothesis. He doesn't get enough press. You got all the big guys like Moses and Abraham and David. Ezra's huge in Judaism. 
In fact, when they were trying to determine the books of the canon of the Jewish Bible, uh, there were a number of more conservative rabbis that said that if a book was written after the time of Ezra in the 5th century, it couldn't be scripture. He was like the second Moses, okay? So what Hobbes and Spinoza did is they articulated that Ezra or someone in his, like an understudy, but likely Ezra himself, was the person who took these various traditions and brought them all together in the fifth century. Okay. One last figure, and then we're going to turn to the big kahuna, and that's Julius Wellhausen. So we've got Richard Simon, the French priest. We've got Hobbes and Spinoza. And the last figure was Jean Astru. Um, he was a physician. Uh, he studied um, viruses. He's a very accomplished physician in Montpellier and in Paris. Um, his uh, lifespan is 1684 to 1766. So now we're approaching the time nearly of the German Julius Wellhausen. And what he did was interesting because Ostru was actually a supporter of Catholic orthodoxy. But what he suggested is that Hobbes and Spinoza had got it wrong by saying that this book was written long after the time of Moses. In fact, he called their theories the, quote, sickness of the last century. So Ostru's kind of this, you know, sophisticated uh, French apologist that's going to set the record straight. And no, we're returning to mosaic authorship now. But here's the big oops moment as far as Ostru is concerned. He's like, no, 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 those guys are wrong. Moses wrote it. But in the process, he writes this very technical, sophisticated French monograph in which he says, you ready for it? That Moses is the primary author, but Moses developed distinct versions of the Pentateuch. <sighs> you might as well just say, we've got multiple authors here, right? So he's, he's basically saying Moses is, is the author, but instead of just composing this text, Moses comes up with two versions of the Pentateuch. And he believed that Moses arranged this into columns. If you've ever seen a, like, you ever see the Gospel Parallels, a booklet like that, maybe in college or in some other source, where you have like Matthew, Mark, and he believed that, that Moses went through a process, a very sophisticated process like that. Okay, so you have source A and source B. Now, here's where we're getting close to the documentary hypothesis. For Astru, source A was where the name Yahweh was prominent in the text. Okay, an example of this would be Genesis 2, where you see in your Bibles, have you ever seen in your Bible where it has Lord in the small caps? If you look at that in your Bible, L in small caps, L-O-R-D, that's a reference to the term that's underneath it, which is Yahweh. Okay. And the traditional Orthodox rabbis would never, they wouldn't even say the name or pronounce the name, right? Uh, and so they would actually substitute Adonai, which means Lord, for the name Yahweh, Yahweh being the divine name. Okay. We'll talk more about the significance of the name Yahweh. But what Austru said is that you have certain texts where the name Yahweh and Yahweh alone appears. A good example is in Genesis 2, and you'll see it there as Lord. 
in small caps. Your Bible should have that, right? And then there were other texts where you had not Yahweh, but Elohim, which is the kind of universal name for God. Um, actually, it's a divine plural, so it can mean God or gods, like where it says in the uh, Psalm, I say you are gods. That's actually where Elo, the word Elohim. So the context will tell you whether it means the God, singular, right, uh, as in the Lord, or Elohim, meaning gods. Um, in Hebrew, I think I've told you guys this in a previous setting, that when you add im to a word in Hebrew, I am, it's like our S, right? So uh, if you have song, S-O-N-G, and songs with an S, and essentially the im ending I am will turn a singular into a plural. So you have uh, nevi, N-E-V-I, it's a soft B, so V sound, and nevi means prophet, and nevim, N-E-B-I apostrophe I-M, there's that ending, prophets. So the, so the three-fold uh, Hebrew canon, the Tanakh, T-N-K, Torah, Nevim, Kethuvim. Kethuv is another one. Um, we have Kethub, K-T-H-U-B, is a writing. Kethuvim, with the ending, is writings. Those are for masculine nouns, and then feminine nouns are oath. Instead of so you have im for masculine and you have oath for feminine. So sab sabbath, sabbath, sabbaths, okay. All right. So, anyways, back to Austru. What Austru was saying then is through his close study of the Hebrew of the text, he determined, and he's right about this, that there are texts where the name Yahweh is dominant or is is the only term that's used and other texts where you have Elohim. So with Genesis 1 and 2, it's like that. Genesis 1 is Elohim. Genesis 2 is Yahweh. What complicates things is that there's many other texts where the two terms are combined. So you get Lord God. What do you do with those, right? Well, we'll talk about that. But at least let's keep it clean for now that we have this understanding from Austria. And this is one of his main great accomplishments is, under, is pointing out the different divine names. Okay. But as I said, what's interesting about him was he was actually, he was not trying to thumb his nose. He was saying, no, 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 Moses did this, but this is how he did it. So you can make up your mind and be the judge whether Austru was a net plus or a net minus, right? Thanks, Jean, for trying there, but you, you didn't really change the conversation very much, unfortunately. It's, he said Moses did all this. But by the time we get to the 19th century Germans, which we're moving to now, uh, what they did is they, they basically said, thanks, Jean, you can sit down now, right? We've we got this. And they really begin to, as only the Germans can do, right? Take all of this information, disseminate it, add to it, synthesize it, extrapolate it, right? The Germans, and come up with a more full-orbed hypothesis. So to this point, we can say we've covered the backdrop from the time before Wellhausen, who's the big heavy hitter here, right? So Richard Simon, Hobbes and Spinoza, uh, Austru, these are all the forerunners, right? What Wellhausen does is he doesn't simply put all the information together. He studies all of it and then came up with a much more decisive theory that we call, you guessed it, the documentary hypothesis. It's hard to say just how significant Wellhausen was 
and just how significant his German monographs on this were. They were a major game changer for at least the next 60 to 75 years. And in some ways, we're still kind of in the aftermath of it now. Only in the past 25 years have people really begun in the modern time to sort of say, hey, wait a minute, what do we have here? And is this, is this the only game in town, this documentary hypothesis? Okay. So let me give you now a definition of the documentary hypothesis. I'm on page four. Julius Wellhaus in 1844 to 1918 was a German uh, Lutheran scholar and is the person who is most recognized as coming up with the source critical theory that explains multiple sources behind the Pentateuch long after Moses, right? And from a number of sources, four major sources. Okay, so here's the definition then. Okay, and this is also on your handout. Documentary hypothesis, DH. A source theory popularized by Julius Wellhaus. Not just popularized, I mean, he did the lion's share of the work here. That suggests that the Pentateuch was a composite of at least, in fact, there were more, he believed, but four major sources. These are independent documents, and he believed that that was written long after the figure of Moses was out of the picture. It didn't even begin, he believed, until about the 10th or 9th century, okay? Which, if you remember from last week, puts us when? In the monarchy, in the time of David or Solomon, or maybe shortly thereafter, right? It's long after the time of Moses. Four separate sources. Now, when I teach this, I go into all the other sources and, and uh, multiple versions of them. So you have like JA and JB. I'm not going to do all that. But the four major sources are known or abbreviated as J, E, D, and P. Those I do want you to know. What do those stand for? Well, those stand for, firstly, the, what he called the Yahwist. Uh, that's the J source. And you're like, what? He doesn't even know his alphabet. Remember, he's a German, right? So the term Yahweh is being, we have to go back into the German. You have to read his stuff in German. Uh, so you have to think sort of why, but it's not why, it's J, because we're dealing with a German here, right? So it's Yahweh with a J. But that's the source, essentially, that Ostru showed us is characterized, there are other characteristics as well, a number of characteristics. But we might say the chief one is it uses the name Yahweh, okay? Now hopefully it'll begin to come together. The next source is what he called the Elohist. That one should be easy enough, right? Where you have the main characteristic of this written source being that it uses primarily the name Elohim. Now, before I go any further, what I will tell you is we're not just talking about different names, but he believed that there were different styles and, and really theological motives for each of these written sources. And I'll talk more about that. So it's much more complicated to simply say, well, one uses one name and one's another. It's much more than that. For the documentary hypothesis, there's a very deep proposal that what we basically have are competing sources. And when we understand the picture, we'll begin to see that the documentary hypothesis really proposes a puzzle, that the Pentateuch is stitching together these actually competing sources 
in a strange way, it's like, well, why would you want to include and encapsulate theological views of people you don't agree with? That's a great question that the documentary hypothesis, in my view, does not satisfactorily answer. It's got an answer. I don't think it's a satisfactory answer. But let me go on. The next source is known as the Deuteronomist. And that one obviously also should be fairly straightforward just to get your mind around, is essentially primarily the book of Deuteronomy. Okay. And the last one is the very famous, you've probably heard this term, even if you haven't heard the others, the priestly source. Okay. Now I'm going to ask Angela to put up for a moment this little chart so we can talk more about this. Okay. If you have that, that map or that color chart, it's also in your handout. Okay, so let's talk about this. So here we can see the, just the abbreviations of these four major sources, the J source, the E source. And then Wellhausen's theory says that what's happening, first of all, is that we have an independent text so that somewhere back there in the 9th, 10th century, we have a source that's much smaller than Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's not just Genesis. It's parts of Genesis through Numbers. And it has a certain characteristic, and I'm going to go through these characteristics in just a moment with you. But that's the first source on the scene, okay? Then a little bit later, about a century later, we get this Elohist source, which has its own characteristics, the leading one being it has the divine name Elohim, the personal name, the more universal name. These, he believes, are then later brought together around here, let's say between the seventh, uh, 700s and 600s. Meanwhile, a different development altogether elsewhere, in fact, in a different geographical location, this Deuteronomist school or source is writing their stuff, largely the book of Deuteronomy. And then lastly, after the time of the exile, so remember the dating from last week, so after 587, during the exile or after the exile, we get this priestly source. Okay, and then lastly, all of these were brought together into one final composite document that drew from the JE source, the D source, and the P source coming together so that we what we finally have is the what we call the books of Moses is finally written sometime uh, around the fourth century. So just take a look at that for a moment. I'll talk a little bit about the dating and the characteristic of these, but a couple things should stand out for you here. First, most obviously, we're way past the time of Moses. Moses is way up here, right, in the 1400s. So we're not even talking about a document that goes back to the great lawgiver, right? We're talking about something much later. The second thing that should occur to you is, again, in terms of these written sources, we're talking about divergent schools of scholars that represent a, a point of view so that the J school, if you will, has a very different theological view than the E school. Um, the Deuteronomist has a different point of view than the other two, and the Priestly school has really the most radical view of all, which I'm going to talk about. But anyways, these are all sort of very delicately and complexly interwoven in a way that it's almost hard to pull them apart. And that's what he's attempting to do. He's trying to go backwards and look at all these different characteristics in what we call the Torah and then piece it together based largely on various 
you know, doublets, uh, repetitions, different names, different theological agendas that he believes are all being represented simultaneously in the Pentateuch. So let's just take a breath here and see, see where we're at. Now, obviously, this is it's a mess, right? It's a big mess. But what I want to do is help you just for a couple minutes is try to understand what he was getting at and how he made this case. So on page four, what I try to do is lay out here what his um, five pillars were, and then I'm going to talk about these sources, okay? First, the five pillars of the documentary hypothesis that Wellhausen developed, five reasons, right, on which it stands. Number one, we already talked about this, right? The use of divine names, which he believed were theological. So where, for example, the name Elohim calls to mind a more transcendent deity, you have with Yahweh something that's much more imminent, something much more personal. And he's certainly right about that. But what he was proposing is that rather than a unified text, which is talking about different dimensions of God's oneness, you actually have different schools of thought that are kind of competing, okay? The second, variations in style and language. We talked a little bit about these. Um, contradictions and divergent points of view. Like, for example, what did they think about Abraham? What did they say about the priesthood? What did they think about the temple? What did they say, think about different laws? And so on and so forth. He had all sorts of criteria for trying to assess all these, what he believed were very divergent points of view being held together in kind of a paradox, right? It's like one document that drew from all these different points of view. So what's happening then is what Wellhausen's beginning to challenge, really, as you can see, is not just the authorship, right, but the unity of the text. And this is very, very important. And I always tell my seminarians, you have to understand that what he was really challenging is really, ultimately, that there is a divine orchestration to this. It's the only way you can come up with it because all these different sources have such divergent points of view. And yet somehow, strangely, rather than getting rid of the point of view that they don't like, they include it out of respect, but still are kind of subtly trying to project their own particular point of view. Okay. So different divine names, variations in style and language on the middle of page four. Contradictions, number four, duplications and repetitions, uh, and other signs of composite structure. So this was his argument, that you have all of these clues within the text that suggests a disparate text. It's not one text, but four or more major traditions being brought together over time. Okay. Again, though, I would remind you this is a hypothesis. We've, no one's ever found a J source. Of course, it wouldn't be called the J source. It would just be a, a biblical manuscript, right? But you, you'd say, oh, yeah, there it is. It's clear. What Wellhausen was talking about, it, it emphasizes Yahweh, and it's got this but not that, just like he said. That text has never been discovered. Neither has the other sources. Now, the Deuteronomy is a little bit different because you can look at the book of Deuteronomy and say that's largely the Deuteronomist. So keep in mind as we're going through this that this is a, it's a major theory, but it's still a theory, and it has a number of challenges which we'll, we'll get to. Okay. So how do we understand these four sources? Let's look at them. The J source, he believed, was the oldest, 9th or 10th century. Good example of it, Genesis 2, right? Now, in addition to that divine name, he believed that this source was composed around Jerusalem or in Judah, 
And it had a very anthropomorphic theology or way of presenting God. I mean, think about it, right? Yahweh is the one who calls to Adam, walks in the garden in the cool of the day, right? And so he believed that this, these were some of the major distinguishing characteristics of this particular source. It used Sinai versus Horeb. And there I'm talking about different names for the mountain of God, right? The Yahwist uses Sinai and well has an explanation why the other source used Horeb, you know, and a theology behind that, right? Okay, 10th century, 9th century. The Elohist sourced, now we're into the next set, 9th, 8th century, a little bit later. As opposed to being written in Jerusalem, it has a provenance in northern Israel. And he's got a whole series of criteria why he thinks that's the case. Well, in addition to just the geography, we're talking about different shrines, different emphases, different loyalties, different tribes, right? And this all went into his thinking. The key characteristic uses the name Elohim. Elohim is the name, or El is the name used for God in the Canaanite cultures. And he believed that there was a lot of uh, symbiosis happening there between the Canaanite religions and that in many ways that the e-source was sort of simpatico with that view of God, but from an Israelite perspective, okay? A good example of the, of the e-source is Genesis 22 or the golden calf incident among a number of others, okay? Okay, and then what happened was he believed those two sources were brought together. I'm kind of uh, synthesizing here a little bit. The third source, the Deuteronomist, 7th century, and is largely um, the book of Deuteronomy. But there's a key text I want you to look at. Um, and it's in Deuteronomy chapter, or sorry, it's in, sorry, 2 Kings, very key text for understanding this whole business. 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 8. Now here we're talking about a very famous king only third after David and Hezekiah, the great reformer known as Josiah, okay? Now, you can read the chapter later on your own, but there's a very key text here in verse 8 that we want to read, and this is what it says. And Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, now watch this, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. I have found the book of the law. Now, there's been various proposals for what was this book of the law. But what Wellhausen believed is that this referred largely to Deuteronomy. Now, Deuteronomy, as you know, is largely a representation of the law to the second generation of Israel. Remember, the first generation dies out in the wilderness after 40 years. So I was like joke with my seminarians and say, Deuteronomy is Moses's homilies to the youth group. It's like, hey, your parents, they didn't do so well. So for you to go into the land, you got to straighten up and fly right. But it's more than just a retelling. Deuteronomy also, in many ways, is a book of renewal and reform. It also lessens some of the strident requirements of the, of the law earlier in the book of Leviticus and in Numbers. Okay, so in some ways, it makes the law more livable, we might say. Okay. And it's this whole reform movement. Well, what Wellhausen believed that this was largely the book of Deuteronomy. They were a Levitical school in Israel. They were very concerned with this whole renewal movement. Uh, they were concerned with the Jerusalem temple. 
And later Old Testament scholars suggested that the book of Deuteronomy was the beginning of a long narrative of historical books. So you go from Deuteronomy to Joshua, all the way to Second Kings. And that they believed in many ways that Deuteronomy was its own school of thought that later inspired the composition of these historical books. And this is another whole topic called the Deuteronomic history. It's like at the top of this other whole tradition of historical books. Okay. Now, before I do the priestly source, you have to know this. In my own doctoral program, when I went through the formation of the Pentateuch, one of the theories that I learned about, not Wellhausen himself, but later, other of his students and others who he influenced, listen very closely, believed that what we have in 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 8, is basically a mythology. That rather than finding the book of the law that was recovered, that is the book of Deuteronomy, that's what Wellhausen said, right? It's recovered during this time. Rather than simply recovering it, it was Josiah's reforms that essentially manufactured the book of Deuteronomy. And so now what we're talking about in the, as this gets more really kind of radicalized, is this notion that the book of Deuteronomy is not this inspired book of God, but really grows out of the monarchy as a reform movement. So it's basically composed and fabricated and you might say pawned off as this book that goes back to Moses when it was written whole cloth so that the discovery of it is Josiah's men writing it down. Okay. So this is where we begin to see this thing starting to go really sideways, right? Why would they do that? Why would they, why would they, why would they make it up? Right? Well, we've got a reform movement, right? So if we say here, this is the book of Moses, right? This would be the radical documentary hypothesis. People, We have this book. It went back to what we discovered it, right? And this is a major theory in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And this is held by very serious scholars. Not all who hold to source criticism believe that particular approach, but I didn't want to mention that. Okay, now let's talk just quickly, but importantly, about the priestly source. And here's where things also really start to come together. The priestly source is the last source. So they have the controlling um, voice on this whole project, right? Remember that what's happening is that later sources are taking their new point of view, their fresh point of view, and integrating it with the earlier point of views. Why they don't just get rid of the earlier stuff and say, here's what we have for you today, I don't know. But that's the idea that it's a kind of combining these traditions, so you have earlier traditions being brought together with a fresh tradition, a fresh point of view by the later schools. So if the priestly school is the last written, that means that it is the final redactor, that they have the final controlling narrative, okay? Well, what would this source be? It's largely the Levitical material. That doesn't only mean the book of Leviticus. It's things like the instructions for the tabernacle, right, that Moses, that God gives to Moses and Aaron in the book of Exodus, right? So you get the law in Exodus 20, uh, 20 to 25, and then Exodus 25 to 40, you get all those instructions for the tabernacle. It'd be that stuff, and largely the book of Leviticus. Anything that has to do with you know, animals, blood, sacrifice, priests, Levitical priesthood, 
all that priestly stuff. Okay. Now, Wellhausen had a very kind of smarmy view about the priestly source. Let me tell you a little bit about this. This is important as well. I've already exposed a real glaring problem with the documentary hypothesis school, I think, with this deuteronomic fabrication, right? Which, in fairness, Wellhausen did not propose that. Later guys did. But here's what Wellhausen did say. And here's where the whole thing really should, you know, make worth the admission tonight. Wellhausen believed that the priestly source was written after the exile from Babylon, those who returned to Jerusalem and Judah. So these were the zealous priests who wanted to reignite um, Judaism and rebuild the temple. So their whole vision is all priesthood, 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 temple, 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 sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. And what Wellhausen believed is that Judaism, as it's evolving here, right? Because that's what's happening, yeah? You have all these different schools. It's kind of emerging like a conglomerate, right? That by the time you get to the, the end of it, after the priestly source puts on the finishing touches and adds all the Levitical stuff, is that you have a very different religion than when you began, yeah? So if you take all that priestly stuff out of the Pentateuch, well, what's left? Well, all kinds of stuff, but you just don't have a priestly dimension. You don't have the emphasis on Levitical laws and all the priestly dimensions like the book of Leviticus. Now, Wellhausen believed that this was a kind of degrading of the earlier, what he believed was a purer religion. So now we, we have to, for a moment, talk a little bit about ideology. All right. Wellhausen was a ninth, 19th century German who is working at a time when, under the Bismarck Empire in, um, in Germany, when <clears throat> there's a lot of political developments that are not insignificant to what's going on here, right? There's a battle between the German state and the Catholic Church for properties and stuff like this. And it's very well documented that a number of academics, as well as cultural figures, so not just theologians and historians, but philosophers and other figures as well, even in music and everything, at this time under Bismarck, uh, 19th century, were cooperating with this larger political um, vision of a kind of an anti-Catholic and anti-Jewish critique of culture, culture comp, as it was called, right? Okay, Wellhausen's own view, I would argue, is very much affected, disaffected by these views that were being shaped in German culture. I have a great quote from Frank Moore Cross I want to read. This is in the Petrie and Bergsman. This might put me another minute over, but I got to read this to you. Frank Moore Cross was an excellent American scholar, and he's writing in the 20th century. And I just want to listen to what he says about a paragraph about Wellhausen. For Wellhausen, the relationship between God and Israel in the monarchical times and early prophecy was natural, spontaneous, free, and individualistic. I'm going on here in the quote. Okay. That such views persist in the face of new knowledge of the ancient Near East, the history of religion and law, and advances in social anthropology, this is more critiquing Wellhausen, is a testimony not to the soundness of Wellhausen's synthesis, but watch this next phrase, but to the power and perversity of anti-Judaic or anti-Semitic dogma. Okay, what, and this is again in the uh, Petrie Bergsma Catholic 
introduction to the Old Testament. In other words, Frank Moore Cross is calling Wellhausen's number. He understands that Wellhausen's ideology is affecting how he develops this documentary hypothesis and the integration of sources. He's brilliant. There's no doubt about that. But there is a kind of an ideology. So where does that leave us from Wellhausen's point of view? Well, he believed that this priestly source had corrupted a good thing. That this powerful school, very small, elite, wealthy priests, had kind of taken over the earlier narratives of these various schools and left to its own devices. Had they not done so, we would have had a kind of kinder, gentler, less bloodthirsty religion, very much like all the other developing Canaanite religions, where you have this kind of, you know, fatherhood of God, as it were, and brotherhood of man, and all the things that you get, for example, in the Pentateuch about, you know, wonderful things, but, you know, care for the widow and the orphan, but completely stripped of the sacrificial cult in, um, in Jerusalem. And that's very, very important to point out here near the end of our hour, because you have to kind of step back from it and ask some very important questions, right? Which is, well, what's really the larger motive of what Wellhausen's trying to do? And I think a fair critique would be, number one, it's very hard to hold that we have a divinely inspired text of God as author when, when basically what he's just described is an evolutionary process that's, listen carefully, anthropomorphic and not, it's anthropological, not theological. Do you get what I mean, right? In other words, this is just various Jews, various schools developing their civilization and their constitution and their laws and their society as they see fit. It's like it's more politics than religion, if that makes sense, yeah? So the first thing that becomes really set aside is divine authorship. The second thing that you end up with is this kind of view that there is all of this infighting going on over these centuries of all these different Jewish sects such that we don't have a unified text any longer. Thirdly, I mentioned the problems with Deuteronomy that we have proposals after Wellhausen's death that essentially this, one of the major books of Moses, is essentially potentially a fabricated source to, um, how to put it, to support the reforms that Josiah wants to bring about. So basically, a fabricated text for the altruistic purpose of promoting political and social reform through the, the rediscovered book of Deuteronomy, right? But maybe most detrimental of all is that we have this corruption of an earlier Israelite religion, according to Wellhausen, which suggests that all these things that from a Catholic perspective lead to our understanding. That's why I started with Jesus, the high priest, of the priesthood being brought under suspicion as a kind of Johnny-come-lately and not a great development at all in Judaism. And I would just pause here and catch my breath for a minute and say, what I think happens then as a result, I mean, just to step back from the, the Old Testament source criticism here and talk about Catholicism, is it's, it's, it's not a very big leap, right? If this is your view of the Old Testament as a kind of a, a beautiful thing gone bad, what was the problem with it? Well, ultimately, it was all this priestly stuff, right? That's essentially what Wellhausen ends up with, is that, gosh, it's too bad that these you know, crazy, rich, elite little group of priests took over this whole thing, or we'd have a very different religion. 
he believed that the prophets were, you know, true religion, the prophetic social voice of the, of like Isaiah. He believed that that was an earlier source than the Pentateuch. Why? Because that's the earlier purer stuff, right? Numbers and Genesis, the stories of the patriarchs, they're very teachable, right? But this priestly source is the one that really brings it crashing to the ground. So naturally then, if you have this approach in Protestantism, liberal Protestantism, to be fair, in the 19th century, then what do you think the view is going to be of Roman Catholic priesthood or priesthood in general? Or even if we might talk about liturgical liturgy, right? If it's under this kind of dark cloud in Judaism, then we have to ask questions of how do we get from there to um, – how, how do we go from that to a very healthy, lively, robust view of Catholicism, let alone the inspired text of the Old Testament? Now, I, I don't want to be completely unfair here and say that, you know, they're all – everyone who works with source Christism is heretics and they're all anti-Catholic. That's not true at all. And in fact, it becomes so influential that a lot of really good scholars, and in fact, many Catholics too, they may not necessarily appropriate the ideology that I've just been describing, but what they do do is certainly subscribe, the majority does, to the technical nuances of these sources. So they'll talk about the priestly source and this source, and they never really discuss what I've just been laying out for you at the end here, is all of these kind of ideological problems. You don't hear about that. In the commentaries, they simply talk about the various characteristics, and this is from P, and this is from J, without really ever getting us to see that underneath it is this much more questionable and ideologically driven undertaking. Now, let's just stop there and catch our breath. What I haven't yet done, and we'll have to get to next week, is a substantial critique of this, okay? So we're not by any means done, but we have to pause here and breathe and, and wrap up and take some questions in just a moment. But I want to invite you back for next week, because if you don't come back for next week, you're going to miss the payoff. I've already given you some of what I think are some of the leading edges of the critiques, but there's more to come. Believe me, I've got about five major points I want to make that will help you to see that we don't have to leave it here at all, and that there is great reasons, historical reasons, literary reasons, theological reasons for seeing if I can spell it right, the unity of the books of Moses. For all these things that they've pointed out, what we haven't discussed is what they've failed to show us, and that's largely this overall substantial unity to the books of Moses. And I'm also going to make the case next week and show you some reasons why I think we can say substantially, as the Catholic Church does, that these books do go back to the person of Moses. So come back for the payoff. But we'll leave it there. It's already 9.04. We got maybe, what, six minutes left. Uh, Angela, I turn it back over to you. I'm sure there's probably um, a question or two that we can try to engage here. Yes, there are. Um, there's a very good question here that, that came in towards the end. Um, when the different sources were written, the later ones, like the P source, did Will Allison believe that the authors wrote down the oral stories or wrote the source from their own minds? Well, that's a very good question. So Wellhausen was a very, as I've described, I hope, a very complicated guy. And his writings are very, very, very complicated to take apart and decipher. But as best as I understand him, he did believe that there was, um, he, he did not discount that there, were or, that there were oral beginnings, let's say. Um, what he believed 
is that essentially, in order to understand how the Pentateuch came together, we've got to set aside any notions of orality. He's not going to deny that, that Judaism is, is an oral culture. But his argument for this hinges upon written documents. So I don't know if that answers the question or not. But let's just take, for example, um, let's look at here from the, the evolution from J to E to J-E. So the J source is composed by, let's say, this Yahwist school, the oldest source. They're composing a text. They live by this text. This text is their constitution, their, if you want to call it scripture, fine. It's their text. The E source develops, and this is important to see, independently, independently. And it's only through a a period of time and interaction that these documents become aware by later generations of both the documents so that the purveyor of J-E is neither J nor E, okay? It's a whole nother school. It's a whole nother development that is trying to take these two disparate and independent sources and bring them together. But as I said earlier, what Wellhausen doesn't really sufficiently answer is what seems to me a rather simple question. Why is it that you have these later scribes or Jew, let's say call them Jewish, if you want, early rabbis, if you will, right? These scholars. Why are they doing this? Can they not recognize that what Jay is offering is sort of one approach to God through the written word and that the E source is offering a different one? So why is it that they brought them together? And, and we haven't really gotten into this earlier, why do they intersperse them, interweave them in a very complicated way? Because I haven't really mentioned this, but to, to pull apart the J or E source or, or other sources in any given chapter, like if we could see like if J was you know red and E was blue, if you were to look at a chapter through the lens of the documentary hypothesis, you'd be seeing in technicolor. Sometimes it comes down to words. This is what scholars are doing today. They're arguing that this word was developed or brought in by this school or that school. It gets so incredibly complicated. And so what's difficult to try to, to understand, just not just the theory, but why this was going on. And of course, their answer is that we have this evolutionary development, which is respecting the heritage more broadly of Judaism, but it's being shaped. It's being pushed this way and that way, right? So that what you end up with at the end is something much larger, but also that has all these conflicting ideas. Because let's be clear, the point of view of the priestly school does not line up, according to Wellhausen, with that of some of the other sources. It just doesn't. They have their agenda that's focusing on a certain locale. For the priestly school, it's Jerusalem, it's priesthood. So they're basically saying it's priesthood, priesthood, priesthood. Okay, I think you see my point. But what's hard to explain is why not then eradicate those other points of views that would be, let's say, 180 degrees or even 10 degrees opposite of, of what your point of view is, right? It's hard to understand how we can reconcile these apparently incongruent things, but that's exactly what I think has puzzled and attracted so many people to it, right? So it kind of like keeps the head spinning and we're not really paying attention to, hey, we've lost the unity of the story here. Now, before we go to one more question, I want to I say something positive. 
And it's the same thing that I could say about the Gospels, is that we could do a series here on the Gospels and talk about this, how the Gospels came together with the so-called two-source theory. That's a whole other topic. It basically went from the 19th century Old Testament to the Gospels in the early 20th century. Okay. Now, a lot of people have a lot of problems with the, the Q theory and all that for the Gospels. But here's the point I want to make. These theories, whatever problems that they may have brought about, have also demanded of good Orthodox scholars, both Protestant and Catholic, to deal with these questions and articulate, to rebut them and come up with better answers. And they also have helped us to look at texts in a new light. So that would be my positive dimension is to say, whatever all this did negatively and whatever the ethos was behind it, there have been a number of positive things that have come out of it on the other side. We may not say it's Wellhausen that did it, but eventually it led to some greater understandings of the Old Testament, and that's a good thing. I'm talking too much. Let's do another question. <laughs> you know, in Genesis 2-4, the older virgin said, such is the stories of the heavens and the earth, like it was a conclusion of the first account of creation. And then in the newer version, it says, this is the story of the heavens and the earth, like an introduction to the second account. Mm -hmm. So is that like a correction that they made or just found it more accurate? Or? Well, okay. Assuming that we have two different schools of thought here, Wellhausen would say Genesis 2 is presenting and highlighting certain theological features. It's its, its own independent creation story, completely separate from the other one. So right. what happens then when it's brought together later is you end up with the older story and the newer story. And then there's all sorts of, they would argue, distinctions, not just the divine names, but all sorts of other things as well. I'll give you one example is it talks about, and this is in your outline, um, in Genesis one, wild plants or plants that were seed bearing where seed is used a mm -hmm. couple of times. Okay. Yeah. Now it also says in Genesis two that, that plants were brought about, let me get my notes here. So Genesis one, you get plants on the third day, and then you get animals on the fifth and sixth day, man and woman, sixth day. Okay, so plants, third day, animals, fifth and sixth, man and woman, sixth day. Genesis 2, it's different. You get man first and then plants. So what uh, Umberto Casuto showed was that they didn't pay attention to the very precise language in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And the shorter explanation, we can talk more about it next week if you wish, is that what Umberto Casuto showed is that there are certain types of plants that are being described in Genesis 1, whereas there are a differentiation between different kinds, domestic plants, let's say, in Genesis 2. So on a linguistic level, there's a solution to that problem. But more importantly, what Kasuda would say is this is no contradiction at all. The reason that there's a different language here is not because it was some other source that brought it in later, but because the text is trying to, in Hebrew, distinguish this from that. So uh, I know that's an oversimplification, but, and we'll get more into these reasons next week. When you have a very keen understanding of Hebrew, what you begin to see is what appear to be inconsistencies. Many of them, when you bring them into focus, there are logical explanations which would be able to subside within a unified text. But for Wellhausen, anything that sounds different it's just, it's got to be a different person. I'll leave you with this example, right? Uh, my kids call me daddy, right? Yeah. My students call me doctor. 
Yeah. You're both addressing the same person, right? This is an obvious, ex silly example. But my point is, well, why? It wouldn't be proper for my daughters to call me doctor and my students call me dad or daddy, right? There's a different title because there's a different relationship. Okay, now take it back to, to Genesis. We can begin studying the text and wiser theologians like Kasuda have, have done this and shown on a very close, detailed level that there are very sound explanations and that we don't need to swallow whole the um, answers given by Wellhouse. And next week, I'm going to take more of these and put them in the spotlight so you can see clearly biblical text and go, oh, now I begin to see what may be really going on here. Hope you guys are enjoying this. I'll turn it back over to Angela. Thank you guys so much. All right. Thank you so much, Professor. So uh, thank you all so much for joining us this evening, and um, see you all next week. <laughs> Bye. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.